Come on up and uh, get down with me. I make it feel real good. Just a way I'm Listening to Mutiny Radio. This is Roman, host of the Weekly Review. We'll be getting the show started in a little bit. Gonna start off with some music. I'm gonna grab some coffee so I'm a little bit sparkly. Maybe not sparkly, but at least a little bit more awake and aware as I offer the news and a little bit of history for us. For some things that are maybe not necessarily discussed or really talked about very much. So we'll be getting to that in a little bit. It's Friday the 13th, so. Watch out. I guess we should always watch out because uh, there's people out there causing a lot of harm in the world. And uh, the best we can do is be aware, be vigilant, and uh, help protect one another. So stay tuned and uh, be starting off with some of my favorite music. I have a lot of favorite music, I guess. There's a song uh, from the Afghan Wigs, one of my favorite bands. Uh, this is uh, Crime Scene Part 1 from their album... Uh, called Black Love, which came out in 1996. So it's from a while ago, and I think it's pretty good. So enjoy, and we'll be starting off in a little bit.
And welcome back to the Weekly Review. It's Roman. We're here at Mutiny Radio here in the Mission District of San Francisco. We're on the corner of 21st and Florida. You can call in if you'd like, 415-550-0511. Let us know what's going on in your life and what's going on in the world and what we can do to make it better. I usually like to have positive news stories on the show. I almost always do. I'd prefer that, actually. And then things come about that are un- that are not quite positive or that are depressing and frustrating, and I feel like I have no choice but to, to read them and go over these stories. However, there will be some positive things happening as I slowly begin to, to wake up. It's been a long week. It's always been a long week. It's kind of a constant thing. So first off, we should talk about what's been happening here in San Francisco. And as many folks know, there have been the folks who are on a hunger strike, which they have since uh, called off, um, to try to get Police Chief Greg Sir fired. Many, 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 many people, hundreds of people, thousands, uh, are really demanding that he either be fired or that he resign. And people in City Hall, some of whom are now finally speaking up about it, have decided to join the fight for that. So that's positive. That's a good thing. And at Tuesday's meeting, at the Board of Supervisors meeting, uh, a few of the Board of Supervisors members actually spoke up. I shouldn't say actually, but they spoke up. Uh, Jane Kim, David Campos, John Avalos, uh, Aaron Peskin, uh, Eric Marr, to really uh, speak up about getting getting him fired. And there were some folks in the Board of Supervisors who don't think this is a good idea, which it's kind of, after all of the the information and the evidence of what's been happening in in the police department to somehow still think that things are okay, I feel you're like either really super in denial or you're just in favor of the white supremacist system that's in place with the police department here, and you're okay with people being killed. And for people like... I, I don't, well, I guess I can call people out, like Scott Wiener, for instance, and Mark Farrell. They actually posted something on Facebook saying, we support the chief 100%. How can you do that? You're a, an elected representative of the city. So they're officially saying that they support what's been happening and, or that they don't have any solution or they don't think that anything needs to be fixed. And I find that to be really insensitive and troublesome. It's really, really troublesome. I'm not a politician. I like I only have my own perspective, and I try to listen to people. And with the show, I like to take on from what I've heard from other folks and do my best to represent what I've been seeing out there, what I've been hearing out there. And the consensus is that the chief should be fired, and for the supervisors to some of the supervisors, I should say, and the mayor to consistently back the police chief, I feel is really troublesome and very very worrisome. And it. Oh, it's just it makes me really sad and and really quite sick. There was the the blue ribbon panel um, that was like an independent investigation. So this goes beyond. I've had my own experiences with the SFPD. Uh, many of my friends have. There's been the news stories about what they've done. There is a lot. There's a lot of evidence. That aside, there's an independent investigation that reveals even more things about them to kind of seal the deal. Even the Examiner, which I feel, San Francisco Examiner, which is a newspaper, I'm glad some newspapers still exist, but sometimes they're a little bit right-leaning and they kind of publish biased information and certainly moneyed, they kind of support moneyed interests. Uh, Even they uh, have been writing lately about how the the chief needs to go. So I think that's that's a pretty big sign when even uh, media that usually defends the systems that are in place begins to question it. I think that's a huge sign. 
and I just feel a lot of um, resentment, I guess, for, for the elected officials who refuse to represent their constituents and the city and refuse to take a stand. So I'm going to go go ahead and read an article here about uh, about what they, they discovered or what the independent investigation uh, declared. Also in Brazil, the there's been the, the U.S. kind of put in this new person in charge. I'm going to read a little bit more about, but it's not good. That's the that's the very quick uh, synopsis of the situation. They put in this dude. He's not appointed any women. There was a woman who was in office, and they she was like kicked out. And a lot of folks are saying it was through not righteous means and was kind of removed from her position and the person who was put in power is has ties to the US and is kind of gross that's the that's the professional term that i'm using so getting to that story as and it's also the uh 31st anniversary of the move bombing uh which happened in Philadelphia in 1985 uh for folks who aren't aware there was folks who are activists who are human beings uh children parents and children humans living in this house and the US uh, the police force bombed it they murdered people in our own country. So we'll be getting to that as well. Will it be something else to, yes, I'll be finding some things that are also positive to to get to, but I think it's really crucial to talk about what's happened in the past, especially since history doesn't necessarily teach that, and that's like kind of the worst thing I feel, is imagine living your life and then your life is taken, and then to not even hear the truth about how you were killed. I think that's really, frustrating and that kind of ties into everything else here especially with the with the police uh, having their own their own story about how things go down and it's really I find quite frustrating when people end up defending the police and defending lies that have been told and it's very disrespectful to folks whose lives have been lost and just imagine what that would be like if you were to lose someone and then people would be defending the murderers I think that's just disgusting so, moving along, we're going to be talking about uh, the yeah the police chief here, and here's a here's an article from SF Weekly, and the title just pretty much says it all. Uh, the SFPD is pretty well fucked, and that's the this is came out on May 10th, and this was written by um, Max uh, uh, Denike. Um, yeah, and this comes from SF Weekly. Uh, the day of reckoning is upon San Francisco's finest, or in other words, the police department is fucked. Cops who engage in racial profiling, old school stop and frisk tactics, poor discipline of problem officers, little to no accountability across the board, and a complete disregard for transparency. The SFPD has all of the above, according to the preliminary findings of a blue ribbon panel of retired judges assembled by District Attorney George Gascon, who was those who was those problem cops' boss just a few years ago. And he was chief from 2009 to 2011. I've heard he's, he's also a problematic figure. Well, however, we're going to go on with this. Uh, the examiner was first to publish these findings, which will be expanded upon in the coming weeks. But the findings go beyond a problem, uh, go beyond a few problem cops. According to the panel, the SFPD is, in fact, influenced by the Police Officers Association, the city's influential and reactionary police union, and the POA's influence has been an impediment to open dialogue and sustained reform. 
platforms. The POA, as it happens, has been the panel's most vocal critic. And coincidentally, Police Chief Greg Sir, who has time and again promised swift justice and reform with the discovery of each batch of racist texts, racial slurs, and each fatal officer-involved shooting of a mentally ill person with a knife, is the POA's guy. Amazingly, during the year-long inquiry, more and more problem incidents surfaced. The panel is expected to recommend reforms, but whatever else is left to come will only make things worse for a police force that has come that has become a shining example of a nationwide disconnect between law enforcement agencies and the communities they serve. That reality was very much on display for several weeks recently as a group known as the Frisco Five held a hunger strike outside the Mission Police Station demanding Mayor Ed Lee fire Sir. Not only has Sir not resigned, and Lee has pledged his support for the chief, and the police union is simply pointing the finger back at its critics, but that's nothing new. But nobody beyond the officers directly involved in the incidents appears to have faced any discipline. In other words, no boss's head has yet rolled. As for the Frisco Five, they starved themselves until they had to be hospitalized. Sir seems to think he can still keep his job, as evidenced by a move he made Friday that can only be described as ironic, considering the department he runs and the release of the panel's findings Monday. The department shared details of a disciplinary case involving yet another racist cop among its ranks. This one, 17-year-old veteran who said he transferred to a Bayview station, and I'm not even going to read his quote, just really racist and disgusting. Um, And he specifically asked to be tra- uh, transferred to the, the Bayview station so he could kill people. Um, and uh, he still, and w- which would be racially motivated, and he still has his job but might be terminated. What the future holds for the SFPD is anyone's guess, but it's clear that this much outside attention has not been paid to the department since the 1970s. That's when Officers for Justice, a group of minority cops' rights, sued the department and won. The lawsuit alleged unfair hiring and operational practices that held back minorities and women. It led to major reforms and decades of federal oversight that ended in the late 1990s, but perhaps did not take root. There is no mention of it in the SFPD's own storied timeline. So that's one uh, one point of view on what's what's been happening, and uh, it's for a while. For so the folks were camped out, um, and I'm going to read another article that adds a little bit more information to this as well. Um, outside the Mission Police Station, they had so the folks were camped out there for a while, and then the cops ended up removing all. Like the there's like a memorial there. There are candles and flowers. The cops moved all that, and they put barricades up so people couldn't even walk on the sidewalk. If you're in a wheelchair, you couldn't even access the sidewalk. Uh, they eventually brought the the barriers down on Wednesday. And um, here's an, another article from Tim Redmond from Forty Eight Hills. SF Police Department is a total god awful mess. Panel concludes, and this is yeah written by Tim Redmond. Uh, Blue Ribbon Group finds disaster everywhere, putting more pressure on embattled Chief Sir. The District Attorney's Special Task Force investigating the San Francisco Police Department issued a devastating preliminary report tonight suggesting that pretty much everything in the department is a mess. It's yet another indictment of the leadership of Chief Greg Sir, and will add to the calls that he step down or be fired. The examiner had the preliminary information this morning, but the actual presentation was even more dramatic. A series of lawyers, mostly from big local firms who worked pro bono to research the department, presented reports that showed an agency riddled by outdated policies, ineffective procedures, and an utter lack of transparency and patronage and nepotism. 
Overall, the report shows that apartment allows rogue officers to operate with impunity, and there's a profound lack of accountability at all levels. Oh, and as Raymond Marshall, an attorney with Shepard Mullen, noted, we find that the SFPD is in fact influenced by the Police Officers Association, and the POA's influence has been an impediment to open dialogue and sustained reforms. The panel, run by three distinguished judges, including LaDoris Hazard, Cordell, uh, Dickgren Tavrizian, and Cruz Reynoso, who was one of the best justices of the California Supreme Court ever in history, was convened by Gascon, a former SF police chief, but operated independently. One of its major recommendations, an independent agency needs to audit the police department, and there's nobody to do that right now. The police commission lacks the staff and, frankly, the political will. The controller's office hasn't done performance audits and lacks the expertise. The Office of Citizen Complaints responds to incidents only when someone files a complaint and has only one policy person on staff. That's a really good argument for creating an office of the public advocate, something Supervisor David Campos is proposing. The city could move the OCC under that office, and the public advocate could handle the audit function. Among other preliminary findings, the SFPD has fine policies around racial disparities in policing, but those rules aren't getting followed. At best, Danielle Coleman, a lawyer with Morrison and Forrester, noted, officer compliance with data collection is incomplete. African-American and Hispanic people are far more likely than whites or Asians to be searched after traffic stops, she said, although there are far fewer instances when those searches led to the discovery of anything illegal. Rachel Davidson, who works with uh, Sidley Austin, reported that the hiring and promotion process is a disaster. There are no clear rules, there is no transparency, and no published criteria. There is real potential that qualified candidates are passed over, she said. More, the disciplinary system is a bit of a mystery. Candidates with disciplinary records for bias can advance through the promotion process. The background investigation process for new hires is a black box, she said. As many as 75% of the background investigation of the background investigators are former SFPD officers, and it's not clear what rules they use for screening candidates. There is, she said, actual and perceived nepotism in the department. No surprise there, it's an open secret. But the panel made clear that it's an issue that must be addressed. Michelle Park Chu of the office of Morgan Lewis noted that the SFPD use of force policies haven't been updated since 1995. The department, she said, does not collect enough data to see if the use of force disproportionately impacts minority populations. When it comes to discipline and accountability, in my mind, the most important issue in the department, the report was exceptionally critical. Nicholas Graham, an attorney with Munger Tallis, noted that there is a radical lack of transparency in discipline. The public basically has no idea whether officers are ever held accountable at all. And noted, the discipline imposed by the chief of police is almost always mild, mostly just admonishment. There has not been one sustained complaint sent to the police commission, which can impose discipline of more than 10 days suspension since 2012. In that period, there have been more than 2,000 complaints. Damn. The Office of Citizen Complaints, he noted, has not sustained a complaint of biased policing since 2012, although more than 200 have been filed. It's a scathing description of a department that can't follow its own rules and policies, and a mayor and police commission who can't enforce any discipline. John Crew, a former police practices lawyer for the ACLU, noted in his public comments that all of this should not be necessary. He said that many of these problems were not new, but that the city has shown the lack of political will to deal with these issues. 
He noted that Sir is the highest paid police chief in the country at $300,000 a year, and that even entry-level officers have some of the best pay and benefits. We have invested in professional law enforcement, he said, and what we got was amateur hour. Indeed. Here's the scary thing. Sir can't last and will most likely retire soon, but there is nobody better in the command staff, and the POA has such a grip on the department that it will be hard to bring in an outsider. Still, that seems to be the only solution. <sighs> so, fuck. Um, I mean, that's, that's the thing. I guess one, one step at a time to get him out of power, and then what happens? I mean, the systems that have been in place for so long... It, it's. I recognize that firing him isn't going to be enough. It is one step in the in the in the in the right direction, and to do that, it's like the first thing that needs to happen. Folks are also asking Mayor Lee to step down. That's been happening for quite a while, and um, that's it's really yeah again problematic when people still. Or I refuse to admit that this is a problem, and that's that's quite problematic. So last Friday there was a huge protest, which I didn't go to, and I feel uh, I feel bad. Well, I feel bad that I don't go to. A, uh, I mean, I I do what I can certainly, and there's always a lot to go to, and I I feel sometimes regretful when I can't be there in person. And so folks went into City Hall, and this was yeah, this was like last Friday night, and there are hundreds of people there, and um, so this was uh, May. Uh, today's the 13th, May 6th. So four journalists were attacked by police. There was a 15-year-old who was also attacked, minors. Um, 33 people were arrested. A friend of mine was arrested. And she was kept in solitary for eight hours. And no one should ever be in solitary. And they weren't doing anything wrong. This was the, the cops just kind of fighting back and um, just being militaristic. And they're the ones who ins- end up inciting the violence. So uh, this comes from a Nata- Natasha uh, Dangond, who is one of the journalists who was attacked, and she posted on her Instagram, Hello world, I have a PSA to make. Please take the time... Whoops. Um, so let me take just a moment while I reload this. Uh, yes, yeah, so a lot of the journalists were, were posting about what happened to them. And that's... It's very, very frightening when one assumes that we live in a place where, you know, if you're just there to report the story, if you're unbiased and there just to record what happens and you get attacked by the cops, if you can't even do that, you can't even do your job and report on what's happening. I think that's really quite scary. So moving along, and I, I'll, I'll wake up eventually. I recognize that sometimes I'm more cheerful than others. Today, I'm just not that cheerful. Uh, There's just a lot going on. Uh, always a lot going on and uh, just taking it taking it uh, as it comes so here we go this is Natasha Dangold uh, who posted on her Instagram we also shared this on the weekly review page on Facebook which is facebook.com slash weekly rev hello world I have a PSA to make please take the time to read this this previous Friday May 6th I was photographing at the big hunger for justice SF rally that took place inside City Hall in San Francisco During this rally, I was alongside many other journalists and press members documenting the events that took place. 
After jumping down from a desk I was standing on to photograph, a riot police officer grabbed me, pinned me against the desk, struck me in the head with a baton. Uh, Thankfully, I was pulled out immediately and carried outside to safety. I do not know what would have happened to me if I wasn't rescued. I was clearly with the media, not partaking in any rioting. Also, protesters around, uh, around me yelled in my defense that I was with the media. Yet the officer still chose to use force to get me out of his way. I spent the night in the ER, luckily with no concussion, but a bruised head and arms. This is a very clear act of police brutality, ironically what the protesters at the rally were fighting against. I will continue to fight against this so the act of violence does not go unnoticed. Luckily, I have have clear footage of the incident, which is posted to my Twitter account, and have been receiving unconditional love and support from friends, media members, and journalist colleagues. I should note that my press pass was on me during the events, and want to advise any media folks to keep in mind that having credentials does not deem you safe from police violence, apparently. Thank you for taking the time to read this, and a huge thank you to all the people reaching out to, to give me advice on steps to take... Uh, Next, and for having my back through this recovery process, articles in the paper with my statement included with more information on the protest can be found here. And there's a link to the article in the San Francisco Chronicle, uh, 48 Hills, and she also posts uh, footage of the incident. Um, So going into the, the article from the 48 Hills, uh, 33 arrested at Frisco 500 City Hall shutdown, written by Sana Salim. Angry actions escalate amid police violence. Three journalists injured by sheriff's deputies. Um, protesters demanding the firing of police chief, San Francisco police chief Gregory Sir, clashed with riot police on Friday evening inside City Hall as the five hunger strikers, known as the Frisco Five, were admitted to the hospital on the 16th day of their hunger strike. Authorities arrested 33 people, including a juvenile, as protesters and several journalists were assaulted by sheriff deputies. Protesters, who referred to themselves as the Frisco 500 in support of the Frisco Five, had occupied City Hall to reiterate their demand that Mayor Ed Lee fire Chief Sir. City Hall closes to to public at 8 p.m., and several scuffles broke out between police and deputies after 9 p.m. Sheriff's deputies, who handle City Hall security, used their batons to push back resistant crowds. Protesters were often pushed back against the two security desks at the City Hall entrance and against columns. As deputies continued to push people back to the City Hall exit, several protesters were dragged and pushed with some hitting the metal detector, which fell on the ground and was banjaxed. Never heard of that word before. Banjaxed. Some of the protesters were manhandled while being arrested. One individual was pushed down, dragged against the floor, zip-tied, and taken away. A group of more than 50 stood outside City Hall as other supporters were being pushed back into the exit doors. The deputies worked their way through two groups of people as the 20 or so protesters that remained further inside the building were surrounded and squared off near the security desk as protesters locked arms to form human chains around each other. The deputies then moved to separate and arrest individuals one by one. The larger group outside City Hall sang and applauded when a protester was arrested and yelled chants each time deputies were violent in arresting protesters who sometimes shoved back. The deputies also pushed back protesters standing outside City Hall doors and locked them as arrests continued inside. They are being dragged down. They are being beaten up. Enough is enough. The group outside the door shouted. Every now and then, the crowd broke into chants of Fire Chief Sir while they banged on the walls of City Hall, and a dozen of them began banging on the doors. 
We do not want to damage public property. We do not want to damage public property. Stop banging on the door. We are not violent. We are peaceful. Don't do that. Just back off and chant. Uh, Yeni Abiba, activist and spokesperson for the Frisco Five, announced Abiba walked around recording arrests and ensuring that protesters were not being violent. It took about 90 minutes for deputies to arrest everyone inside and turn their attention to the larger group outside City Hall. Deputies pushed the crowd back to the stairway outside City Hall and onto the sidewalk without incident. A line of deputies then stood guard as protesters shouted back, Shame on you. Shame on you. Captain Paul Miyamoto told Mission Local that the charges for the protesters were unlawful assembly, trespassing, and resisting arrest, and those arrested were taken to the county jail at 850 Bryant Street. On the sidewalks, protesters announced, We all need to go home because this is a revolution. It will take its time, but we will come back again and again. Back at 17th and Valencia, police blocked off the sidewalks and locked down Mission Station just hours after the Frisco Five left for the hospital. Public works crews hosed down the sidewalk and removed the remaining possessions of the strikers and their supporters. The tents had already been removed, but DPW workers seized everything left. Danae, who had been with the strikers the past three nights, told us that the police would not allow her to reclaim clothes that were on the sidewalk. My jacket, my hoodie, and four pairs of pants went away in a DPW truck, she said, shivering a bit in the cold. The sidewalk was shut down for several hours, forcing people who were walking along Valencia to move into the street, where traffic was continuing to pass. On Thursday, a call for a rally at UN Plaza was put out to support the Frisco Five. Supporters had vowed action every single day to highlight the demands made by the hunger strikers. However, as media and some 20 supporters gathered, it began, it began apparent that the rally was a decoy for action in, inside City Hall. The protests at City Hall began around 4 p.m. as a group of 40 supporters assembled outside the mayor's office and began chanting and hammering on the door as others slammed drumsticks on the office walls to create noise. I want you all to know that this is our house. This house belongs to the people, and we will stay here until Chief Sir is fired, said Nancy Armstrong Temple, activist and director of Dance Out Loud, who intends to run for District 2 Berkeley City Council. Official closing time on Fridays at City Hall is 8 p.m. Protesters said they would not leave until their demands were met. At one stage, protesters tricked City Hall staff by announcing their intention to leave City Hall and to the Mission Police Station, but in fact, their intention was to get the City Hall doors opened so that the protesters waiting outside could join them. Despite shouts by police to stand clear from the door, protesters kept it open, shouting, No justice, no peace. An hour before official closing time at 7 p.m., sheriff deputies emerged with batons, and Captain Edwin James told protesters that they would be arrested if they didn't leave. In response to protesters, in response, protesters formed a human chain and lined up in front of the assembled riot police. Almost one hour after the official closing time, the police started to push people forcefully out. At least three, uh, at least three journalists were assaulted by police officers. And I'm going to uh, play a, a clip now that was taken from uh, that event. And so that was just some uh, footage of what was happening inside City Hall. If you check out the article, there's it's easy to see. It's just it's City Hall was uh, completely packed.
Uh, one journalist, Natasha Don, uh, Dongand, from the CCSF college paper, The Guardsman, told 48 Hills in a shaky voice that she was hit in the head with a baton. I was standing taking photos on one of the tables with other media, and then I jumped down. Next thing I know, one of the cops had turned me around and held my arms around my back and hit me in the head with a baton. Dongand was, was pushed against the City Hall visitor's desk. She later visited UCSF Medical Center and was found to have bruises on her head and arms. I was standing taking photos on one of the uh, tables right there with some other media, and then I jumped down, and basically next thing I know, one of the cops had turned me around and put my arms behind my back and hit me in the head with the baton right here, where I can feel bump, and luckily there was someone who saw and pulled me out, and I immediately was pulled outside. Despite journalists shouting they were members of the press, police used force against three journalists, including this writer. Back up! You're blocking their path! Back up! You're blocking their path! Back up! She's against the press! You can't touch her! Back up! One of the one-by-one police zip-tied protesters and violently took them away as the crowd outside City Hall looked in the windows and cheered each time a protester was taken away. By 10 p.m., City Hall had been cleared and officers pushed the protesters who were looking in the windows back down the steps of City Hall. Today marks one month since the police shooting of Luis Congora on the streets of San Francisco, a stark reminder of what the protesters are protesting. As the Frisco Five wake up to day 17 of their hunger strike, and despite being hospitalized yesterday, they show no signs of backing down until their demands are met. So um, we'll be just covering uh, one more um, piece of this. And if folks want to follow online, there's a group called Hunger for Justice SF, and they post the events. The, the movement has sparked a lot of followers, and there's a lot of people. and. On Monday, there was a, another protest outside City Hall, and I went to for part of that, and we were just kind of marching. I stopped off a couple times during the day, and towards the end, we just did a little marching across the front of City Hall, and there were six police officers standing. There was barricades, and then six police officers standing in front of City Hall, and just talk about like, a waste of tax dollars uh, for f folks who are there for no reason at all, just to, just to stand there and to look intimidating. And so we marched for a while and people were out there all day, which was really reassuring. And they, they have called for just like an ongoing, uh, an ongoing boycott. And first of all, for like our corporate fast food places, cause everything is connected and the powers that be, um, don't really support, uh, independent places. And also just for folks to continue the, putting the pressure on. So if you go to Hunger for Justice SF, um, yeah, you can uh, find more information, join, and find out what's what's happening with them and with with the group. And I'll read one more um, article, and then we'll move on to other other news. Um, so this is a little bit more updated. This is from May 12th, also written by Sana Salim uh, from 48 Hills. The Frisco Five are back. This is a community-driven fight, and we will keep fighting. In the first ever appearance since they were taken to the hospital on Friday, May 6th, the Frisco Five make clear that the struggle will go on and announce public meeting on Saturday. 
In their first appearance since they were taken to the hospital on Friday, May 6th, the Frisco Five, except Maria Cristina Gutierrez, spoke to media and supporters outside Mission Police Station on Valencia. Scenes outside the station were jubilant as supporters greeted and hugged the four hunger strikers, Edwin Lindo, Ilik Sato, Ike Pinkston, and Selassie Blackwell. The group announced a public meeting on Saturday at the Black and Brown Community Center. Lindo is a lawyer and candidate for supervisor for District 9. Sato, better known as Equipto, is an American rapper and producer. Pinkston is a preschool teacher at Compañeros del Barrio. Blackwell is a local rapper and artist, and Gutierrez is a great-grandmother who, and runs a preschool called Compañeros del Barrio. All five, more popularly known as the Frisco Five, were on a hunger strike for 17 days to demand Ed Lee, Mayor Ed Lee fire San Francisco Chief, Police Chief Greg Sir. Gutierrez's absence was palpable. Ever since the hunger strike began, she emerged as the leader of the group, as the four referred to her as Mama Cristina. Her son, Elixato, better known as Ecripto, began by providing updates on her health. Visibly upset, Ecripto spoke about Gutierrez's recovery. My mother couldn't make it due to her health condition. She can't stand long at all, he said, before sharing Cristina's anger and frustration towards Mayor Lee. She can't believe that Ed Lee is still behind Chief Sir, even after the blue ribbon finding, among other things. That my mother couldn't make it due to her health condition. She can't stand long at all, and she's having trouble going to the bathroom. <laughs> she told me to stay there. So it's uh, we're here basically to state to the media that we can't believe that. Ed Lee is still behind Chief Sir, even after the Blue Ribbon finding, amongst other things, of course, that the supervisors reacted very late, and our health paid the consequence for that. And i also like to mention that all of us are pretty going through some health conditions, so it's not just my mother as well, we all are. Um, but yes. Continue to fight, and we still have our demands, and things are growing, as you guys can see. And we plan on making, bringing, escalating it even further until our demands are met and we're heard by these city officials. So basically, I just wanted to say that in representation of my mother, because she's not happy with what's going on. She's mad that it took the supervisors this long for them to respond after damaging our health and risking our health on the streets for over 12 days and they visit us then. And telling us it yeah. was illegal. Yeah. Lying to and us. For them to say in our face, London Breed and Malia Cohen, that it's illegal for them to say they want a new chief and the chief should be fired. Right. All of a sudden, Kim and Campos and Avalos and others step up and say that they could do it. So it's just, we're gonna, our plan is to expose all these, all these trickeries, all this politics that's going on because the people are woke. We're all woke and we've had enough and we're gonna take it to the streets, we're gonna take it to City Hall, we're gonna take it on all angles. So basically that's my statement. And, uh, other brothers have something to say. 
On Wednesday, four supervisors, Jane Kim, David Campos, John Avalos, and Eric Marr, publicly announced their distrust in Chief Sir and demanded a national search for a new chief of police earlier on when the Frisco Five marched on City Hall on the 13th day of their hunger strike. And I apologize, because when I started the show, I mentioned that Aaron Peskin was also one of them. And he, although he voted aye on a lot of their, their motions, he is not one of the four who has been, so far, has spoken up about that. Uh, the Board of Supervisors had expressed that they had limited cap- uh, capability when it came to discuss decisions regarding Chief Sir. In fact, Board President London Bree told the crowd that when the city attorney had, ad- had advised her that the soups could make no statement on the matter, that's because the city charter forbids supervisors from interfering in the operations of city departments. However, Matt Dorsey, spokesperson for the city attorney, Dennis Herrera, told us yesterday that the office initially, that the, sorry, that the advice initially given to Breed was out of an abundance of caution that statements about the chief were starting to get into that area. But after further review, he said, the office has decided that not only can the soups individually call for Sir's resignation, but that it would be legal for the board to pass a resolution calling on the mayor to fire the chief. Christina said that she felt the supervisors acted really late and did not show immediate concern for their health. Our health paid the consequence for that, says uh, said Equipto. The four of them have been slowly going back to a solid food diet after being released from the hospital. It's tough to eat. It's not easy. You can't just go back to eating full meals, Blackwell remarked. Pinkston is still struggling with dehydration and has been instructed to keep drinking water. It took them the third trip to the hospital to draw blood, so yes, I am not too happy about that, he said. Pinkston shared his concerns regarding supervisors Malia Cohen and Breed, both of whom have yet to comment on their stance regarding community demands for a new police chief. Pinkston recalled their march to City Hall and the mayor's inability to meet with them. We go into the Board of Supervisors meeting, and I mean, nobody has the mayor's phone number that they've been telling us. That, that's what they've been telling us, he said, expressing his disbelief. You're trying to tell me there's nobody in City Hall with the mayor's phone number? He said the support they've received from the community has been surreal. For some of the supervisors, the Blue Ribbon Task Force report was the, fi- was the last straw. However, only four of the 11 members of the board have publicly announced their distrust in Chief Sir and asked for a national search for a new police chief. Um, I'm very happy with what we did, and um, we... we we're operating off of a higher spirit and a higher power, and um, we feel deeply that uh, Chief Sir will be fired, or he will have to step down very soon. It's a lot of pressure on him. And I asked Chief Sir to look inside, bro. He, you, you rich man, you got all that money. Um, you, there's nothing you could really do. And if you really care about this city or San Francisco, step down, bro. If you care about your police department and you want to do right, look at your record. It's despicable, you know. And um, just because you, uh, any anybody that is working in that situation, if you have that record, it's like a coach. I've been looking at it like a coach. Look at Harbaugh. You know, Harbaugh got fired and, and 
and and he was a great coach. You know what I mean? And and it's because his players, it's just all bad. So, sir, your players is not playing the game right. So you got to go. You know what I mean? And um, and the people, the, you got to go. And the people is going to uh, create the new the new reforms for the new police chief and and all that. So the people will have a place at the table when it comes to a new chief and the new reforms of the police department. That was us, Lassie Blackwell, speaking to the media. Uh, we feel deeply that Chief Sir will be fired or he will step down because there's a lot of pressure on him, said Blackwell, who felt that their hunger strike had helped push them, push them community, push their community to take further action, and he's hopeful. The people will have the place at the table when it comes to the new police chief and reforms inside the police department, he said. Lindo began thanking the city and the community because the mayor and the police chief would have let us die in these streets and this corner. Lindo then asked the community to cheer for students from San Francisco State University who volunteered and slept on the streets during the hunger strike to keep watch. Um, many of the students started a hunger strike of their own to protest possibly budget cuts of the ethnic studies department. And I see we have a call, so we're gonna take this call. Uh, hello. 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 Hi, Gail. Who am I speaking to? This is Roman Reimer. I thought it was Roman. What are you doing, Roman? I'm talking about the all the pressure to get police chief Greg Sir fired. Good, good, good. You know what means? They were just on TV again. You know, the news. And he's talking about they're working on it, and there's quite a few mentally ill people in San Francisco. And a lot of them are in office. <laughs> and and the mirror's talking about um, how he doesn't need the, some of the supervisors to go political against him, like, you know. <laughs> That's, it's slimy, man. That, because from my own experience, while I'm trying to expose what they did to the city, and I contacted the mirror's office, and they don't want to expose it. It's baloney because they said the legality of it, they can't expose it. But then they turn around and make this a sanctuary city. Mm -hmm. And so if you're going to be legal, be legal all the way, you know? It's bullshit. There's a lot of dirty things going on that people don't know about. Absolutely. And and someone, you know, they were trying to divert the attention to getting rid of the complete the police chief. And they were talking about the tasers. And some woman said, we don't want no tasers. We want the police chief out. Absolutely. And then someone was over here saying the next one is going to be the mayor, going to recall him. Yeah. It's good they're doing all this, making all this uh, commotion. Or it's going to be business as usual, you know? Absolutely. I mean, of course they said that uh, some people of the opinion the police chief is not his fault. But he is the head of the organization. And why didn't he put in a stop to this crap when it first started? Yep. I mean, one killing like that, you know? But four, maybe, I mean, maybe even more. I mean, because I'm not a lawyer and I'm not a police officer, but I think if the things that these police officers were doing, if a private citizen did it, they would be up on charges for murder. Oh, yeah. Or manslaughter. Because the way I understand it is if you're having a fight with someone, you only can fight to the point of you can defend yourself. After the person is incapacitated, you cannot go over there and beat the shit out of them anymore. Yeah. Or you'll be up front charges. 
So these people who were far away from the police, who didn't have a gun, were shot. Were they really in imminent danger, like they said? Supposedly one of them had a the knife in his uh, pants uh, waistband. Yeah. You know, because people said they're witness to that. You know, yeah, they, I'm glad they're doing And then they had those people that were starving themselves. Yes, yeah. The now, do you think they really cared, the government officials? Come no. On. I mean, maybe they care in a passing way, but they didn't care enough to say, okay, I'm going to quit my job so those people ain't going to die. And the mirror didn't say, okay, I'm going to get rid of the chiefs so those people don't die from starving. You know, they got to put on a public space. Yes. But I'm thinking deep down they weren't all that concerned. No. I mean, if they were that concerned, these shootings of these things would have stopped after the first one. Yes, absolutely. Not, and I continue on, continue on, continue on. And the only reason why they're messing around now, in my opinion, is because it's a public image, you know. It's all out there in the public, and they're doing uh, damage control. Yes. I think they let's just like to let things go as they are. But they got to do something with all this complaining going on. And remember, my our mayor, he even said when he was appointing the mayor, if I'm not mistaken, he said he gave the word that he wasn't going to run for office. And what did he do? Ran for office. That's right. So sleazy, sleazy. So I'm looking to see what's going to go on with Trump, the bump. And um, he had his meeting with Paul Ryan yesterday. Oh, there's two people mm. I despise. <laughs> Maybe they're going to kiss and make up. I don't know. <laughs> ah, it's all crazy. Amen. I'll kiss you another time. All right. Thanks for calling in, Gail. Bye. Bye. So, yes, uh, as, as, as you hear, there's a lot of folks out here who are – just aware of what's happening and have to give a lot of gratitude and thanks to the the Frisco Five for bringing that attention. And a lot of folks have been recognizing this has been happening for a long time and for folks to put their lives on the line and their bodies on the line. Um, these folks, as well as the folks who are at City Hall, who are protesting and who got arrested, all of these people really putting themselves on the line for the, the greater good. Um, I send un, just undying love and gratitude to do that, to get the word out, and so for people to who might not necessarily know this is happening, to really start paying attention, because the more people who are involved, the harder it is for people to ignore that this is happening. So I'm going to finish uh, reading this article, and then take a bit of a music break, and then we'll be back with some more news. Uh, we feel deeply that Chief Sir will be fired, or he will step down, because there's a lot of pressure on him, said Blackwell, who felt that their hunger strike had helped push their community to take further action and he's hopeful that people will have a place at the table when it comes to the new police chief and reforms inside the police department he said linda began by thanking the city and the community because the mayor and the police chief would have let us die in these streets and this corner linda then asked the community to cheer for students from san francisco state university who volunteered and stepped and slept on the streets during the hunger strike to keep watch some of the students started a hunger strike of their own to protest possibly budget cuts of the ethnic studies department i want to say that san francisco is under a microscope and it can't move anywhere except towards justice lindo continued i love that when you are standing on the side of truth people will get in line 
Lindo urged the Board of Supervisors to step up and demand for a new police chief. We need 11 Board of Supervisors to stand up and say that Chief Sir is failing the city, and it's not just four police killings that were unjust, of Alex Nieto, Amilcar Perez Lopez, Luis Gongora, and Mario Woods. Let's go back all the way to 1998, when Mark Garcia was killed by then-Lieutenant Greg Sir out of the Mission Police Station, he said. Watching. San Francisco is under the microscope, and it can't move anywhere except towards justice. And I said it a couple days ago, when you're standing on the side of truth, people will get in line. The problem is, there's too many interests pulling you away from that truth. And we saw that in the Board of Supervisors, as mentioned earlier, they told us to our face that it is illegal to make statements on personnel matters in this city. And we said, well, what are the consequences of making a statement on personnel matters, including firing the police chief? He said, well, make it reprimanded. He said, okay, well, are you going to stand on the right side of history? And at the time, none of them said yes. Yesterday, Jane Kim took the step and said, Chief Sir must be fired, and you had three other supervisors decided to take, to take suit and follow along. We need 11 Board of Supervisors to stand up, take a stand, and say that Chief Sir is failing this city. It's not just the four police killings of unjustly of Alex Nieto, Amilcar Perez Lopez, Luis Gongora, of Mario Woods. Let's go all the way back to 1998 when Mark Garcia was killed by Lieutenant Greg Sir out of the Mission Police Station. That's true. Right. When they disarmed him, right. put, him in a, put him in a paddy wagon, stepped on his back, and he died at the hands of Lieutenant Greg Sir. He was the arresting officer. He is ill-equipped and is never should not have been after being demoted twice the police chief of this great city. That's right. So what we're saying is. And as I said earlier, when they try to close the restrooms on us, we're inside this police station. You ain't seen nothing yet. And we are coming. We're coming for justice. Justice is going to rain on this city like a tornado it hasn't seen before. And it's not starting with us. We're just the vessels. It's all of you that have been out there following us, the love, the water, the coconut water, the tents, the seats that said, we stand behind you. And so if you are ready to make the change that this city deserves, stand with us. On Saturday, we will have a community meeting, a black and brown community meeting. All right. We will have an action to make sure that the mayor knows there is always someone outside of his door demanding Chief Sir to be fired. And the police commission, it is now your responsibility and your turn to stand up. That's right. The police commission has the right to fire Chief Sir. It is your responsibility to take a stand. And I know there's at least a few that will take it now. But if you wait long enough, we'll make sure all of you get, that, get up and stand up for justice. So we love you all. All the colors. We love you all. all. We love you too. Love you too, brother. And we will continue to fight. We are led by a strong, powerful mother yes, that yes. is the mother of San Francisco. That's right. Mama Gutierrez. And she's given us the power and the force to continue on. This is just the beginning. Because while police brutality is an issue, 
It stems from gentrification. It stems from the undereducation of our students. It stems from the inability to live in this city affordably. And it stems from the fact that we can't even get jobs that allow us to live here. So if y'all ready to win, we're ready to walk. And we will win. Lindo said he still gets nightmares from his time at the encampment outside the police station. As they move towards regaining strength, the five are struggling with moving back to normal life. It feels strange to sleep in a bed now, Pinkston said. So what's in it for the future? We will continue to fight. We were led by a strong, powerful mother that is the mother of San Francisco, Mama Gutierrez. She's given us the power and the force to continue on, Lindo said. He said that this was a community-driven effort with no leaders, setting commands and actions, and that the four of them reiterated that they will join community efforts to put an end to police impunity. Lindo continued, so if you're all ready to win, we are ready to walk, and we will win. And... Stop hating in the bay. Here's my CD, by the way. In your deck, press play. Hear what I gotta say. Stop hating in the bay. I'm trying to eat while I stay. Push a hundred thousand tapes like back in the day. Stop hating on me. special way how you ever gonna hear what they gotta say tell you itunes i pop and play listen to your peers to listen to you that's a fact number one golden rule back in the days of born and mac since 88 we transcended start movements show the whole world independence how we do it you throw my poster off the pole how you know i watch it you're mad at how i came up in the game it really shocked you grew up off tupac e40 gop hits mr c cool nut told me it's quite outlandish you're utterly ridiculous wasting time trying to hold me down i'm too ambitious give your boy listen better yet why my cd salachi says stop hating all through your city stop hating in the bank here's my cd by the way in your deck press play hear what i gotta say stop hating in the bank i'm trying to eat while i stay put your hundred thousand tapes like back in the day stop I'm not the bait president, I'm not even the prince, but I bet I'm one of the hardest 
working brothers in this blue. My generation called it dipping, now they call it scraping. We called it animosity and now it's player hating. I'm never speculating on your music if I haven't listened. I never got some, I uphold our tradition. Stop hating in the bank, here's my CD by the way. In your deck, press play, hear what I gotta say. Stop hating in the play, I'm trying to eat while I stay. Push a hundred thousand tapes like back in the day. Is that 
with your racist excuse for your stopping frisk pump we ain't trying to hear militarized occupation along with racist legislation gives impunity for killers with a badge no hesitation black communities must organize for our own self-defenses no more passes resistance if we want to preserve our existence i'm taking our human rights violations to the united nations i'm bringing up criminal charges for this police lawlessness my motto praise the god but pass me the ammunition i'm on the dock for my people it's time you make that decision if you're scared of a hearse then take your ass to church because if you stand up to the pigs you can die we stand in the dirt every 36 hours a brother's killed by the pigs this is a nationwide call to protect our kids whether it's an eye for an eye or a 242 let's make the pigs think twice before they kill me or you stand up for the hood fool rest in peace rest in peace Stephen washington raven wayne Stephen rodriguez kendrick mcday Selassie, you can find uh, that song as well as several others at selassiefrisco.com. Moving along, just going to give a very, very brief overview of the MOVE bombing, which happened 31 years ago today. And uh, so it was a massive police operation in Philadelphia that, this is uh, from Democracy Now!, uh, that culminated in the helicopter bombing of the headquarters of a radical group known as MOVE. The fire from the attack incinerated six adults and five children and destroyed 65 homes. Despite two grand jury investigations and a commission finding that top officials were grossly negligent, not no one from the city government was criminally charged. MOVE was a Philadelphia-based radical movement dedicated to black liberation and a back-to-nature lifestyle. It was founded by John Africa, and all of its members took on the surname Africa. And there's a transcript from last year that Juan Gonzalez um, uh, where he interviews um, folks uh, who are present uh, during that, that bombing. And so I recommend checking that out. You can check that out at democracynow.org. Moving along. Uh, yeah, I mentioned that there might be some positive news stories and, uh, I don't know if they're going to come or not. We'll see. Uh, so just going through things that I feel are really, there's a lot of important things to talk about. And this is something that hasn't been in the news so much. And that's uh, from Canada, uh, attack on Canada's only surgery clinic for trans people elicits zero reaction. And this is written by Laura Brightwell. And this came out on May 10th and you can find it at rabble.ca. On the evening of Monday, May 2nd, Canada's only sex reassignment surgery clinic was subject to an arson attack. A man armed with a machete axe and gas can set fire to the operating room. Constable Abdullah Emran of the Montreal police has stated that they are treating the incident as a potential hate crime because there is, this is the only clinic that does gender confirmation surgery. But at this point we have nothing that confirms it is related to that. Press were remarkably slow to respond with reporting coming in late and often with no mention of the work the clinic does. Social media has also been slow on the uptake with its reaction to the crime. Uh, the Centre Metropolitan de Chirurgie uh, in Montreal offers sex reassignment surgeries, more often called gender confirmation surgery, to transgender Canadians. The arson attack caused an estimated $700,000 worth of damage and put the clinic temporarily out of action. 
In a statement, the clinic said that they were forced to cancel surgeries scheduled between Tuesday, May 3rd and Friday, May 6, 2016. Other surgeries are currently being performed at an alternate location. Although the damage isn't permanent, it is yet to be determined when the clinic will reopen. For, mender, for many gender confirmation procedures, the Center Metropolitan Dish surgery is the only clinic in Canada that accepts patients referred by provincial health care programs. Sex reassignment surgeries are at least partially funded by eight of Canada's provinces, although not all of these provinces cover all types of gender confirmation procedures. The Montreal Clinic is the only clinic in Canada that provides both male-to-female and female-to-male gender confirmation surgery. Trans people travel from both Canada and the U.S. for surgery at the clinic. The arson attack is directly impacting transgender Canadians waiting to have their gender confirmation surgery, some, of, some who have already waited years for access to this vital service. One patient who wishes to remain anonymous is scheduled to have gender confirmation surgery at the clinic later this year. They state they were livid at the lack of support for the acknowledgement of and Oh, they state that they are livid at the lack of support for and acknowledgement of the incident. I have been waiting for this surgery for three years, and some queer allies said they don't, they didn't even know this clinic existed, which is a slap in the face. Ontario has recently expanded access to gender confirmation surgery by expanding the list of providers allowed to refer patients under its provincial health insurance plan. The Centre Metropolitan de Surgery remains, however, the main site for these surgeries, funneling more patients to the clinic and potentially increasing wait times. Delayed access to these procedures is shown to increase rates of suicidal ideation among Canada's trans population. Word of the attack spread via social media, but with relatively little uptake. Initial coverage by the press neglected to mention the kind of work the clinic does, and it also failed to raise the importance of the clinic's status as the sole option for trans Canadians seeking sex reassignment surgery. Montreal-based trans right advocate Sophia Banks, who asked people to spread word about the attack, notes the press's failure to connect the attack to trans Canadians' vulnerable status. If someone tried to burn down Planned Parenthood, we would know the motive. But when a trans clinic gets torched, it's motive unknown, Banks wrote on Twitter. The lack of response to the incident from within the LGBTQ community is also striking. Other challenges to trans rights, such as North Carolina's bathroom bill, have elicited a strong response on social media. However, the Montreal incident remains largely unacknowledged by Canada's LGBTQ community. There was zero reaction from the community bank states. She believes this lack of interest is reflective of transphobia in the cisgender queer community. Trans people don't really matter. The fact that we only have one clinic in all of Canada is a good example of that. We're just such a small minority. People don't care. Banks also thinks it's easier for Canadians to criticize transphobia in the U.S. rather than look at the situation for trans people in Canada. It's easier to point the finger at the states. While it may be tempting to play the incident down, given the motive is given the motive is yet unknown, its symbolism to Canada's trans community is not lost on many onlookers. If nothing else, the, this attack has demonstrated the importance of up, of opening more clinics to provide these procedures for cans for trans Canadians. If they had succeeded in burning it down, think of what a disaster this would have been for trans healthcare, says Banks. Trans healthcare can save people's lives, but to do that, it has to be available. Oh, so that's fucking depressing. Um, both the instances that this happened 
and then the lack of res response from other folks, especially within the community. And I've definitely been experiencing that my entire life, and I know a lot of folks have as well. There's that marginalization within marginali marginalized communities. And how how are we supposed to you know fight oppressive forces if even within our own communities people don't stand up for one another and help one another? I think that's really really quite upsetting. Oh goodness gracious! So there's a few more things to get to. Um, I'll just read a couple articles in the Village Voice. The NYPD just admitted that it issued millions in illegal citations. If you already don't trust the police, as many of us <laughs> do not uh, trust them, uh, this does not come as a surprise. You can find this at the Village Voice. So they just admitted that they were wrong in terms of issuing millions of illegal citations. And this is, of course, on the minor thing. Um, there's a Green Party presidential candidate debate with uh, Jill Stein and two other folks, um, uh, Kent Mesplay and Sedanam Kanamo Kristen. And uh, I'm going to play a little bit of that just because it's imagine if these three folks were the, you know, the three front runners for for president. Imagine what that would be. And it's a, it's a long video. So I'll just play a little bit of that. And here we go. And uh, as it loads, uh, the medical doctor, uh, reproductive health is a part of health in general. And under a Stein administration, when we turn the White House into a greenhouse, we will ensure that everyone has health care as a human right. And that includes head to toe coverage, that includes your reproductive health as well as your mental health. And uh, government does not have any business uh, dictating your health, whether it's your psychological health or your reproductive health. Uh, and all the support systems, pharmaceuticals, etc. devices should be supplied. Yes, as president, I would establish a commission that would ensure that every police killing be documented, not hidden. Yes. Um, I'm spending a lot of time in Austin, Texas. You know, the saying there is, keep Austin weird. Uh, there's a great cultural flavor in Austin. But Austin ranks as the city with the fifth most police killings nationwide. So we, we need a cultural shift as well to not have a militarized police force. Uh, we, could, we have to talk about Orwellian issues. So far this nation has slid to the right and take the money out of out of the military make it nonprofit first and foremost our system is outdated as you pointed out because we have online it would be easy that every American go to a library before a month before and say who they're voting for and then show up on the election day it should be a legal holiday that's first and foremost but we can know who can win ahead of time secondly we need to change the whole concept of electoral college that's outdated it was based on the enslavement of black people they called us three-fifths of a human being that is what that's based on so southern states could have the ability to take credit for black people that they didn't own and have balance so the electoral college needs to be abolished just wiped out secondly as i said let everybody vote three, 30 days ahead so we kind of know who people are going to vote for and why so there's no Bush v. Gore craziness anymore and that people when they vote they put online folks who don't are not computer literate go to a library so we are testing and trading out everything so this is known before time we could do that and it would encourage to have people being able to show up to vote on that day and we should let children and young people vote so we know what they're thinking about. Uh, I appreciate uh, Sudanam's stance on guns. It's also the Green Party's stance, namely that we are a party of nonviolence and peace is one of our main issues. However, at the current time, we live in a country that is heavily militarized. 
we are acting like a predator across the planet. I do not believe in giving up our guns as long as we have a, a military that poses a threat. Um, so I do support our Second Amendment rights. But as a concession, I would say we really need to phase out weapons. We need to uh, decrease the manufacturing. Thank you. Thank First and foremost, we are one race. I wish everyone stopped saying racism. It's complete ignorance. We are a human race. This is about love and truth-telling. That label alone has created ignorance that we see now. Second thing is, I am against capitalism. I am a socialist, and capitalism is barbaric. We talk about, generally, within our platform, about economics being community-based, but unless you change the economic system of capitalism, which got us here, this this is just nice talk. Moving on to independent voters. Yes, uh, yes. Mm -hmm. So, Dr. Jill Stein, this is coming to you. According to a Gallup polling, 42% of Americans identify themselves as independent voters. 44%, actually. Uh, and there's 25% uh, Republicans, 31% Democrat. Mm -hmm. If you win your Green Party primary, how will you sway those independent voters away from the Democratic Party or the Republican Party? I think uh, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump are doing a really great job of doing that right now with all the mudslinging going on in the campaign, with the flip-flopping, with Hillary Clinton being a, um, a walking advertisement for, the, the, uh, for Wall Street uh, profiteering, for the Walmart economy, uh, for the fossil fuels, having established a department of the uh, Secretary of State, which was all about uh, spreading fracking around, around the world. You know, I think that uh, these candidates are, you know, candidates of uh, hate on the part of Donald Trump and fear on the part of Hillary Clinton, uh, where many voters are coming to vote for Hillary out of fear of Donald Trump. Hate and fear are not what democracy needs. Democracy needs voices and values. Um, that is what my campaign and our party is about, standing up with a moral compass for what we actually need to go forward. We need jobs. We need living wages. People are not going to hear their needs addressed. Right now, Hillary in fact, is shifting to the middle, you know, and trying to appeal to uh, right-wing voters, to Republicans, you know, she's not going to hold on to our potential supporters. You can only have so big a tent. Uh, Hillary is a uniter uh, in terms of sort of the corporate uh, corrupt middle ground of, of society. So I, you know, Hillary is doing her very own fine work, and as is Donald Trump, by disparaging women, immigrants, uh, Muslims, uh, POWs, um, the disabled, etc. They are uh, sort of the perfect storm for the independent politics that we need. Within our platform, we have very clear guidelines of what needs to take place to end corporate hood within our current electoral system. In fact, our system is outdated and it's old. We don't need all that money. We should have publicly financed elections so that real candidates and true people that only give creed and care to citizens are elected. Within our government, within our government, we would end corporate finance of parties. There's 158 families that I plan on visiting who have given more, most of that money. So I'm going to knock on their door and say, stop. I'm telling you now before I'm president, stop now. And I ask all third party and independent candidates to join me in calling out those 158 families. And while we're doing that, those wealthy families, we call out every one of the PACs that are giving money that is just screwing our democracy. We need to file suit against the, the airway 
case because they're not allowing, they gave one of the most ignorant candidates more free time than anyone, way too much for something that ignorant. We did not resolve our issues within the Civil War and they are bubbling now. And unless we have honest voices and good leadership, our nation is in for a very hard ride. We won't get to 300 if we allow this, this buying of our democracy. Dr. Kent Mesplet, you're up. Yeah, I'm here, here. It, it really is a big problem in the United States. So certainly we need uh, public financing of campaigns. Uh, Jill has been doing really well on the campaign trail, and she's received matching funds, which is a first for the United States. So, um, you know, congratulations to her for all the hard work that she's been doing. Uh, we need to close loopholes and ban PACs and super PACs. The problem is that this money does tend to get funneled toward individual campaigns, and it's grossly unfair. Money does not equal speech, free speech. It's essentially expensive shouting. Thank you. Uh, we've seen the incredible corrupting influence of big corporate media in this race. Donald Trump, you know, basically got his boost. He's got he's received two billion dollars, uh, practically in free media from uh, big corporate uh, exposure. Uh, Hillary Clinton has received about half as much. You can be sure the Green Party has received uh, absolutely zero. The head of CBS said recently that Trump may be terrible for America, but he sure is good for the corporate media bottom line. We can get big money out of politics, and we can make free media free. These are the public airwaves. We own them. We deserve free access, which brings down the cost of campaigning immediately. And then we, could, as, as the public, can afford to fund Thank it. Thank you. Moving on to uh, food waste, actually. Dr. Jill Stein, uh, industrial farming has caused a, a host of ecological and, and health disasters for the American people, uh, one of the worst of which is waste. Feeding America estimates that over 70 billion pounds of food goes to waste in this country every year, with 25 to 40 percent of food grown, processed, and transported in the U.S. never even consumed. What would you do as president to reduce the food waste, and how would you make sure that that extra food gets to the people who need it most? Well, I want to say this is part of a very big problem in a industrialized food system which has waste at all ends and throughout the chain of production, disposal, creation. It's, a, uh, it's an industrial system which is unsustainable, which has an enormous carbon footprint, which is unsustainable in and of itself. It is also making us sick. This is an uh, industrialized food system that has taken the nutrients out and put a whole lot of refined and processed bad stuff in. So, you know, my, my view is that we need a uh, wholesale transformation of our food system. We need a sustainable, just, and local system which actually provides food as a matter of justice and as a matter of right and nutritious food so we don't have our poorest uh, and most disadvantaged communities, largely communities of color, living in um, you know, uh, food deserts to start with. And you don't have this uh, massive animal farming system as well, which is polluting our water and our land at the very uh, outset as well as treating animals extremely inhumanely. So, you know, I think we need a wholesale transformation of our food system so it's run for people, for planet, uh, for health, instead of being run for profit, which is the way that it's currently run. We've integrated food transformation into our Green New Deal. So we're calling for changing our food system together with our energy system and reviving uh, and expanding uh, energy efficient public transportation so that we can actually attain the sustainable and healthy economies that we need now. 
Okay, so that was just a sample of the the Green Party presidential candidate uh, participants, and again, that uh, was uh, Serenam, Kinamo, Kristen, Moyos, Sin Asifa. I'm sorry. Sedanam, Kinamo, Kristen, Moyo, Wasefaza, Curry, and Kent Mesplay, and Jill Stein. And imagine if those three were the folks who we heard from the most uh, instead of the other three, uh, if they got all the airtime. And of course, with those three, I agree with all of them. And uh, that would be great for a great dialogue if all three candidates were very much really wanting to look out for the people and really wanting to make a change instead of folks who are not instead, but I think, I think at least a couple of the front runners, it's fair to say uh, their history does not show them to really be for the people. So imagine if these were the, if those were the three candidates, the three main candidates that one could vote for. Oh, I can dream, I guess. And that's a positive news story, I guess that the, the green party uh, has some good folks uh, speaking, speaking truth to power. Um, I got a sad story. Uh, oof, I'll, I'll do my best to, to do this best I can. Uh, this is from democracy. Now with Rousseff out, Brazil's interim president installs conservative, all white, all male cabinet. I think we already know how I feel about this. Uh, this came out, uh, this is uh, from today. Brazil's former vice president, Michael uh, or Michelle Turner, assumed power as interim president Thursday after the country's Senate voted to suspend President Dilma Rousseff and begin impeachment proceedings over accusations she tampered with accounts in order to hide a budget shortfall. Rousseff called the move a coup. Turner is a member of the opposition PMDB party and has been implicated in Brazil's massive corruption scandal involving state-owned oil company Petrobras. He was sworn in Thursday along uh, with a new cabinet that is all white and all men, making this the first time since 1979 that no women have been in the cabinet. So if you'd like to hear more about that, you can check out Democracy Now! And also The Intercept also has coverage of this. This is really bad, bad news. (laughs) This is really disturbing and quite frustrating. Um... There's a lot of isms in the world, and we try to get to as many of them uh, just to like talk about what's happening in the world. There's the the fact that they're happening, and one wants to validate that these things are happening and listen to people who experience these things and also just find connections. And a lot of the people who are in positions of power are the ones who are uh, oppressing and just doing the the damage to a lot of communities. And I feel like that's the good place to um, to to focus the the anger at. Um, I'm going to end on a, on a positive story. We got a little bit, little bit of time left. And so, uh, another, there's misogyny everywhere. If you don't, if you didn't realize that, uh, it's everywhere. And that's something I feel like that's been so normalized in our culture that people kind of forget that it exists. And, uh, it's really crucial to, to discuss and, uh, recognizing that, um, Hollywood's a complicated place. I know folks who, uh, who work there and the, the, the difficulties of it, and it doesn't really represent uh, an, an accurate depiction of the world itself uh, from the from the work that's being put out there. And then also folks who work behind the scenes. Uh, I've been doing getting some extra work, background work, and in the, I know one should bite the hand that feeds you, but I've had a few really uncomfortable situations or interactions uh, even just doing this work in the creative field, uh, where 
there's there have been I guess mostly I, I would call it just transphobic comments and a lot of it comes from ignorance but it's also like wondering where one can find a place where one doesn't have to encounter that and transphobia is just one example of oppression being used and that can be used like based on people's bodies so then we talk about and I recognize that the Green Party candidate uh, was mentioning like to, to not use the word racism since we're all the human race however there is the uh, the folks who treat people differently based on their their skin color and people pe- treat people differently based on their gender and then there's like uh, ability and uh, class and there's so many different factors which lead to hierarchies and status and people mistreating each other and I'm just kind of talking myself into a kind of depressive corner here um, and I think a lot of this is just so normalized that it's for the folks there's folks who refuse to acknowledge that it exists and then there's folks who take part in it un, unknowingly and I feel like I am definitely part of that where one grows up in this culture and it's the systems are so in place and behaviors are so in place that we end up repeating behaviors that are problematic and we need to be called out on that um, absolutely and as uncomfortable as it may feel um, it needs to continue to happen for change to, to take place my my point was going to be about an article that uh, came out that I'm looking for at the moment about uh, sexism in Hollywood, which we of course know exists. And there's a lot of isms in Hollywood, and uh, this just I mean I think beyond the idea of you know what people's body types are like, um, the fact that like women who would like who are directors are not being hired at all is it's actually it's getting worse so this comes from the business insider there's another article official article i was looking for but this also covers it so this is from the business insider a federal investigation into hollywood sexism could change the film industry forever behind the scenes of film sets and production companies throughout hollywood a government investigation into civil rights abuses against women is underway that could have major implications for the film history the guardian reported the ratio of female to male directors hired to helm new films is actually has actually decreased since 1998, dropping 2% to just 7% of directing roles in the star-studded town. The plight of female directors is relatable to working women in all industries. Full-time working women earn 21% less than their male counterparts in 2015, 79 cents for every dollar earned by men. While filmmakers like Jodie Foster say it might be difficult to get interested in millionaires worrying about who gets paid more, she says Hollywood is just part of the broader national conversation being had on the wage gap. These are conversations that we need to have in our in our culture, Foster told, said on Sirius XM. We need to have conversations about diversity all over the place and inequality, especially now when the class inequality and financial inequality is larger than ever. And it really is the problem of our future. It's something that we need to that we all need to look at and think about how to solve. In an essay published in Lena Dunham's uh, Lenny Letter, uh, actress Jennifer Lawrence spoke on how young women are still facing the challenge of negotiating their contracts in male-dominated industries. Based on the statistics, I don't think I'm the only woman with this issue, Lawrence wrote. Could there still be a lingering habit of trying to express our opinions in a certain way that doesn't offend or scare men? Fortunately, there might just be a silver lining. Director of the LGBTQ Gender and Reproductive Justice Project at Southern California's American Civil Liberties Union, Melissa Goodman, told the Associated Press she was very encouraged by how seriously the government has taken this. Our hope is that they'll push industry leaders to address the ongoing violations of civil rights uh, women directors in the industry have experienced and are experiencing, she said. So again, that's just one more piece of the puzzle 
uh, and again, it just comes down to people being treated differently based on the bodies that they're born into and what continues to happen without being questioned. Um, oh, there was a huge, okay, this is from earlier this month. Uh, there was a, a May Day anti-capitalist rally in Montreal. So that's something to, even though it's doesn't, it, there was the, the shitty fact that the, the clinic was, was burned. And then there's it's also good to recognize the, I guess the positives of folks speaking out and uh, I'm going to play a little bit of a sound clip from this here. So it's a, this comes from globalnews.ca tensions run high at Montreal's May Day anti-capitalist rally and the article is written by uh, Navneet Pali and Annabelle Olivier. Meanwhile, another march was taking place in the city. This one had more of a hard line message. Uh, it was the annual anti capitalist demonstration and uh we're having some buffering issues here uh so i'll read it as this begins to load a little bit more and police were prepared uh, for uh, anyway montreal uh montreal mayday anti-capitalist protesters stood off against montreal police in front of the the guy police station sunday afternoon police fired tear gas to disperse the crowd following what police say were criminal acts I personally think capitalism is a criminal act, but that's just my opinion. Over a thousand protesters gathered in downtown Montreal at 2 p.m. in a rally organized by La Clock. Uh, that's C-L-A-C. In a written statement posted on the group's website, the goal of today's march was to disrupt commercial activity dominated by the local bourgeoisie. The protests started off with at least two groups in different parts of the city until they merged on the corner of Robert Bossera. Borassa and de Maisonneuve Boulevards. Heavy police president heavy heavy police presence followed the protesters. There's no official word yet on arrests or injuries, but protesters say two people were sent to the hospital after police fired tear gas. One protester, apparently in a clown suit, was injured on the foot and the other a woman had difficulty breathing. And so I think it's just also good to recognize that there are even when I going back to the the first story of the day was talking about police brutality and the uh, supervisors who refuse to acknowledge that it happens. So on their Facebook pages, like Mark Farrell and Scott Weiner, they're saying we support the chief, and I'll, so when then folks speak up against that, people were were kind of denying it, saying, "Oh, you're people who are against the chief are a vocal minority." And when you look at all the people who have been out on the streets protesting, especially during the week. Um, how is that a minority if there are so many people who are taking time out of their day to actually stand up and show up? And I think if the other folks were in a position where they actually had to do that, they wouldn't, they maybe haven't even had that, that position because if things are going well for you, if you're not feeling threatened at all, you're not going to go out and march. But for the fact that people do feel threatened for everyone to kind of show up and people who even couldn't be there for that many people to take time out of their day to be present and to show up. That is not the minority by any means. That's a lot of fucking people. And if you follow anything online, there's a lot of people from across the country, around the country, people also in the Bay who couldn't be there in person who are sending, you know, their well wishes and their gratitude and their solidarity. So there's this myth that anyone who's maybe against the status quo is in the minority. And that's not true at all. I think it's quite the opposite. It's the few folks who will hold on to that power who are in the minority. And because they have the capital, and they have connections. Um, they're the ones that get to keep their their power for now. And to it's like this kind of gaslighting where it's like, oh, you're in the minority if you're opposed to something. Well, no, no, no. I think it's. I really think it's the opposite. And for more people, if more people were aware of it, we'd have even more folks who are opposed to the current corrupt police forces here. 
So um, there's <laughs> one more story I was going to get to, and I think it's – I'm going to take a look at it and see, uh, whew, which I think is, is quite interesting. And uh, you can find these at the – I know I'm a little bit anti-Facebook, but that's where we are posting the stories right now. And that's on facebook.com slash weekly rev. And then if there's time at the end, it'll just take a little bit to, um, we're all about boycotting, oh, boycotting Monsanto all the time. And also Driscoll's, which if you think, what's Driscoll's? They make, they don't make, they distribute strawberries and they have had a lot of uh, really, they've been abusing their workers for quite a while. So do not buy Driscoll's products. Support the workers. Do not buy Driscoll's products. That's the boycott of the day. In addition to the addi- you know additional Monsanto. So I think this is quite an interesting um, idea. And this is, um, uh, 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 <laughs> excuse me. Um, Mike Gogolski might be the first case of successful voluntary statelessness. I personally, when people talk about the Middle East and some folks are like, two-state solution, and I'm like, how about a no-state solution where there's like no states anywhere because borders are made up, and if we were all to like share the land together, that would be pretty ideal. If we're actually going to work for something, how about no states at all? Uh, so this kind of goes in, in line with that, and it comes from Vice, which I get is like an interesting place to find news from, but uh, like just the idea behind it I feel is really intriguing. In 1863, Edward Everett Hale published a short story called The Man Without a Country. It's a cautionary tale about one Philip Nolan, a U.S. Army lieutenant who renounces America in a fit of rage. In response, a judge orders that he spend the rest of his days at sea, floating from ship to ship, without any news from his country. Nolan begins the journey unrepentantly, but as time passes, statelessness wears on him. He misses his home more than he longs for his family or or the touch of dry land. Just before his burial at sea, he requests that a gravestone be placed in his honor in memory. Okay, moving on. Um, what most people don't do is formally sever their national ties and strike out on their own as a nation of one. Even in our so-called flat world where free trade and lightning quick communications make physical borders seem like a vestige of the pre-digital ve- digital past, the fabric of our existence remains a patchwork of nations. Citizenship is fundamental, and those who are legally stateless are usually destitute and disenfranchised with their right of nationality withheld by a repressive regime or thorough or through draconian bureaucratic error. Large intergovernmental organizations dedicate themselves to helping these ex-citizens reestablish their statehood. Statelessness is simply not a position anyone freely chooses to adopt. There is one notable exception to the rule. Micah Golsky, a 41-year-old hacker, anarchist, and former U.S. citizen. In late 2008, he walked into the U.S. Embassy in Bratislava, Slovakia, and renounced his citizenship. Later, he burned his passport in defiance. He is, in all likelihood, the only person alive today to have successfully made himself stateless of his own accord. Today, he's an online activist who writes on anarchy-related topics like the ailing cryptocurrency Bitcoin and the now-defunct underground marketplace Silk Road through his blog, nostate.com. I encountered Golkowski's work in, in 2011 when I was researching citizenship uh, renunciation. The number of U.S. citizens giving up their passports was, and still is, on the rise. Government records show that renunciations jumped from a few hundred each year to more than 3,000 in the four-year stretch before 2013. This is mostly due to new tax laws that require U.S. citizens to report their bank accounts and income on a yearly basis, whether they live in the states or not. But Golkowski's motives were different. The way he sees it, he wasn't consulted about being an American in the first place. Would I willingly enter into a relationship with the U.S. government for any reason 
other than if someone pointed a gun at me. No way, he told me over glasses of whiskey and cans of beer at Progress Bar, a local hacker space in Bratislava where he hangs out. Gogolski, who grew up by an orange grove in the suburb of Winter Park, Florida, sees no point in participating in democracy, period. The sales pitch that goes with democracy is people can vote to choose the government they want. But that's a lie, he explained, pacing around the room. We might get to tinker around the margins, but the central organism of states, which is murder, robbery, rape, continues on. It's hard to argue with this assessment, but going stateless presents more challenges than it really solves. The main problem is mobility. A stateless person can travel in Europe under the EU's free movement laws, but he can't go outside the so-called Schengen area without procuring a visa, a process that can take months of administrative hassle. The other problem is the paperwork. Without citizenship, everyday tasks like obtaining a driver's license or opening a bank account are much more of an ordeal than they normally would be. And there's a rarely, state, rarely a stateless box in drop-down menus on, or government forms. What's more, people without a country can't claim any protection from a government if they get into trouble abroad. Although, what is abroad when you're from nowhere? The semantics of statehood surround us. It isn't a stretch to conceive of Gogolsky's consensus... Con- Oh, yeah, consensus uh, statelessness as offensive, even inconsiderate. Uh, the moral mission of an intransigent white American manarchist acting from a position of relative privilege, if a female Bangladeshi garment worker did the same thing, would anyone notice? Gogolsky acknowledges that his situation is nothing like that of other stateless people. He sees his move as an act of solidarity. Citizenship is a tool of class division, a tool of hierarchy, an instrument of social control, he told me. There is no equality between citizens and non-citizens. The truth is, you can only be so free of the state. To get around, Gogolsky uses a stateless person's document issued by the Slovak... Uh, authorities and a EU residency card, which looks like a driver's license. There's a certain irony to his predicament. He wants, like so many citizens who are disgusted with their governments, to break free of the clutches of state power. In particular, he wants to extricate himself from the atrocities wrought by the United States, and his statelessness is an extreme form of conscientious objection. But by going stateless, he has put himself in the position of having neither king nor country nor means of leaving the EU. There are many ways of describing the predicament Gorgolsky's gotten himself into, but that, there's one that's a bit clearer than the others. On paper, he pretty much has fucked himself. Well, that's their opinion. Um, so we're running a little bit low here on uh, on time. I'm going like, to read just the, the end of the uh, article here. Uh, last paragraph. Um, the stateless future may very well be on the horizon, but in real life, in 2014, this is from 2014, uh, there just isn't that much to see. Gogolsky is stateless and in Bratislava, but for all intents and purposes, he could be anywhere. He does not sail the seven seas, adrift, and forced to face his actions like a fictional lieutenant, Philip Nolan. He does not embark on the journeys around the world to make a point about the arbitrariness of borders like Gary Davis. Gogolsky can't leave Europe and, by his own admission, doesn't much want to. He doesn't need the world. He has the internet, his community and abiding hope that t- technology can set us all free. A cat who has a passport and a wife who processes visas for a living. Hmm. Is this the utopian future we've all been waiting for? Okay. So that's their, their, um, uh, their, their take on it. And I feel like it's definitely kind of a, from a cynical thing in it, but I do feel like it's really important to, to question that. And I'm, I think there's a lot of folks who this idea of th- the, the idea that you're kind of, automatically made to be an American, you know, like the, the land that was taken, uh, you know, you're born here and then we're kind of given this without any choice in the matter as to where we have, have citizenship. And, uh, it's, I think it's really interesting to think about and, 
Yeah, so I'll just leave it at that. It's 148. Coming up next is Women's Magazine with Global Val. We'll be playing some music, uh, and then we'll be heading out. Uh, thanks for listening, everyone. Again, this is the Weekly Review with Roman. Catch me every Friday from noon to 2. I'm also on Mondays from noon to 2 with Jermaine Reeves and George Bracey for Transworld. You can listen to that here at Mutiny Radio. Um, yeah, that's that's about it. That's quite a lot of things to think about. Uh, messages to take away from the show is, I guess, whatever you take from it. Question authority, as always. Question the states. Question law enforcement. Uh, provide solidarity for folks speaking up and speaking out. And uh, start talking more about uh, just, I guess, transphobia. That's something that I, I don't mention too often, but I experience on a daily basis. A lot of my friends who are trans also experience on a daily basis. And with the, the arson occurring at the clinic in Canada is just one small example. It's not even a small example, but it's a pretty big example. Imagine if there's something that you need to get done to survive and one place that can provide that is attacked. And beyond that, people refuse to really acknowledge it or talk about it or to lend help. Uh, just imagine how alienating and isolating and frustrating that must feel. And that, of course, is just one example of the many ways in which um, folks are not necessarily standing up for one another. But there are ways in which they are. So and on a positive note for the, the fact that there were the four people on the board of supervisors, even though it's maybe a little, a little bit late, um, change can happen when you apply pressure to people. Uh, people will eventually speak up. So it's not ideal, but there definitely is room for folks to, to speak up and to fight the power. So I guess with that being said, I'll have to play some Rage Against the Machine. And this is a song called Know Your Enemy. Uh, have a great weekend, everyone, and we'll be back next week.
which are American dreams, all of which are American dreams, all of which are American dreams. Insomnia, anxiety, stress, chronic brain, depression, nausea, and can induce euphoria and stimulate appetite. I'm gonna guess waffles. <laughs> that is incorrect. <laughs> Actually, Alex, the food I'm talking about are cannabis-based medicinal extracts. Cannabis-based medicinal extracts? That sounds like you're smoking drugs, Ed. No, baby. There are smokeless, safe, and less expensive alternative to smoking. But can I use it to sleep? Yes, baby! Good, because I'm so excited by this that I may never sleep again! And it sounds like you, Alex, may want to check out the number 4altacalifornia.com. That's 4altacalifornia.com for a non-addictive pharmaceutical-free alternative to smoking medical marijuana. Check them out today at number 4altacalifornia.com. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of MutinyRadio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shitface McRat. <laughs> Yeah, you. You look like the kind of person who has a sense of humor. Oh, is the radio talking to me? No, I'm on an internet podcast. I'm talking to an internet podcast? Don't be silly. It's a one-way form of communication. But I don't want you to miss out on the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival 2016 from March 2nd through 6th. And you don't have to. You can buy tickets now on universe.com with 24 national and international visiting comedians and 20 local hosts. You won't want to miss a thing. What if I can't be at every show? Don't worry. All shows will be available for free download at mutinyradio.fm until the internet falls apart. Oh, podcast got I can't wait to listen to all these great comedy shows and everything else that's cool at MutinyRadio.fm before the internet falls apart. You too won't want to miss a bit of the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival from March 2nd through 6th, 2016. Buy tickets now. Brought to you by Subliminal SF, PBR, The Eagle SF, Brainwash Cafe, Asiento, and the great people at Alta California Botanicals. Have you heard of Subliminal SF? Visual and auditory mind control. Graphic design, physical merchandise, live music promotions. Go! www.subliminalsf.com 
for the most amazing t-shirts you've ever seen, graphic design for every need, and live music promotion at some of the best bars in San Francisco. That's Subliminal SF, visual and auditory mind control. Go to SubliminalSF.com now. Good evening there, my friends here at MutinyRadio.fm. Chester Cashcock here, and giving you my love and regard as well as movies over there. And uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that any time I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. I mean, if anyone who knows anything about comedy knows that Pamtastic's books the best of San 